It's Sunday, June 11th, and you're listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. P&P is a movie podcast interrupted by a baseball discussion between two old friends. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, in this week's double feature popcorn discussion, Tom and I take on Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not. While our second film is the 1955 Burt Lancaster effort, The Kentuckian. In Peanuts, we mourn the retirement of friend of the show, Bartolo Colon. White Sox minor league prospect Oscar Comas has come out as gay, and the Tigers and the White Sox play one of the more unusual games ever. We'll react to a recent Jason Stark column and Joe Castigliano's activation of Siri during a Red Sox broadcast. Steven Strasburg experiences yet another setback, and finally we'll mourn the passing of Ed Stack, the former president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. How you doing, Tom? I'm um, doing very well. I'll be a chilly here on this uh, yeah, morning. Very it's, it's very, very cold. Uh, finally got the rain that we really needed, and basically it's uh, supposed to rain all day here on Sunday. I don't know if we're going to get the same rain here in Chicago, but it was very chilly yesterday. And uh, my poor daughter, she's on a Girl Scout camping trip and uh, she got some bad weather. I hope she's okay. That makes for even better stories 20, 30 years from now. Exactly. Exactly. She's trying to tell her kids that they have to go to camp when it's raining out. (laughs) So now, have you heard about uh, Leo Messi coming to uh, Miami to play soccer? Is this amazing? It is, but but I guess this reminds me of when the late great Pele came to the U.S. Kind of in different circumstances because he was brought primarily, kind of like Gretzky was in the late '80s when they traded him to L.A. to you know expand the the audience of of football, soccer in in North America. They're both kind of at the same age, and so I, I don't you know I think for me, if I was Messi, I would have retired after the World Cup. That's just me because I just feel as though he was at such a level at such a, an older age, which we don't really see very often that it's only going to go downhill from here. I just don't see a way that he's going to sustain it from a physical standpoint. However, the goodwill that he brings will be extraordinary. First of all, the uh, it's my understanding that, um, MLS is one of the fastest growing leagues in the entire world of all sports, not just not just soccer, but just of all sports. And the fact that it really has kind of taken a hold in North America, he's only going to kind of put the, you know, the icing on that cake. And I, I, I just wonder what his contribution on the field will be. I think it may be greater off the field. Well, you know, you talk about him as a player now and and obviously the level of competition in the MLS isn't what it is in Europe where he was playing at Paris Saint-Germain and before that at Barcelona. But, you know, he's still going to, I think, dominate. And when you consider the skills that he has right now, one-on-one, he can still break down anybody. He can't run as fast as he used to, but any defender one-on-one, he'll be able to get by that defender. And second of all, on set pieces, free kicks, things like that, he's still really, really dangerous. So he can kind of go to Miami. He can he can get his kids 
in American schools where they can learn English, which is what, which is what his wife wanted, mm-hmm. which is why he turned down half a billion euros, you know, to go to uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, that's why well, the but he he turned that money down because he didn't want to live in Saudi Arabia. That's yeah. really what it came down. Well, to. His, his, yeah, yeah. His wife, I don't think, wanted to live there either. And his wife, from what I understand, really wanted the kids to learn English. That so makes sense. So yeah. And but but another thing, too, is that, you know, uh, Miami can loan him out to Barcelona in the fall. You know what I mean? So he can have a kind of an easy summer. He gets his cake and eats and gets to eat it too. You know, it's it what you know. He's it's great to be messy today. Well, the thing is, too, his family will live in relative safety in Miami as opposed Mm. to Argentina. True, true. And and I I think this is good for him. It's good for his family. It's good for MLS. Yeah. And hopefully, he'll still be with them when they come to Chicago this uh, fall. Yeah. Right. Right. You know. So now, did you hear the uh, Unabomber passed away? Yeah. Well, actually, he killed. He killed himself. He committed. He suicide. killed himself. He committed, committed suicide. I they didn't, he passed away at eighty-one. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he was, I guess, apparently in late stage cancer. Uh, but what I read in the New York Times was that it was a suicide. They didn't say what the form was, but in a prison cell, it can only be one of a couple things. It's not like you have a gun. Um, so uh, I just remembered. I don't remember if you remember like the hoopla of this guy back in the early '90s, back in our Cody's days. That yeah. was quite. That was quite the. Uh, story of fear of, of this guy who basically my take on on this brilliant he was brilliant i mean an iq of 170 i mean that's extraordinary uh i think he graduated high school at like 12 or 13 which whenever i hear about these super brains i, I always wonder about their social experience um i worked for a guy that ended up being a billionaire that uh you know went to college at age 13 and he had social problems too uh even though he was brilliant just like this guy um what I thought was interesting about it is some of the stuff that this guy was professing, you're hearing this from the fringe right today. I, I think to a certain degree, he's become in vogue, if that's possible. Well, Bomber could become in vogue, but certainly his principles that he subscribed to are supported by the fringe, the fringe right out there. And, um, you know, he was martyred to a certain degree because he represented the old way, the old world, when things were different, when things were more white and things were more, um, you know, there was just, there was no wokeness there, you know, all that kind of stuff, a a different time and period, you know, kind of, kind of what we'll talk about in our second film today. It was a different way of life back then. And I think he, you know, living in that little shack uh, up in Montana, he subscribed to that. And he did, you know, he, I'm guessing that he, he was pissed off the minute he learned what electricity was. He was one of those kind of guys, like he completely off the grid. But what I thought was interesting is the fact that he's aged fairly well with that fringe, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, I mean, I'm sure he's a bit of their poster boy. Right. Exactly. No, it's, uh, you know, but it's, so let me ask you a question. Did you have trouble breathing this past week? I was okay. I mean, what's going I, on in Canada? Yeah, the, the, these wildfires in Canada. It's been a very, very dry spring, early summer. We have not gotten a lot of rain. And that goes for, you know, here in the Midwest, the, the Eastern Seaboard, and also in Canada. And there have been these really bad wildfires. Now, the air quality was lowered here in Chicago, but we didn't, it wasn't like New York and Washington. Right. where, you know, smoke basically descended on those cities. You couldn't even see the skyline in New York City. 
you know, uh, so it wasn't bad here, but they canceled baseball games in New York and, and Washington. And did you get some smoke in uh, Northern Michigan? No, but we got the smell of it. It, it, really? it, it Oh yeah. It, you could smell that something was burning. I think uh, early last week, in fact, I think it woke my wife up in the middle of the night. She's like, something's burning. You know, when we live in a cabin in the woods. It's when you, you smell something like that, you got to act on it. Yeah. And basically it was, you know, uh, America's designated driver, Canada, yeah, you know, yeah. acting like Linus from Peanuts, you know, <laughs> I just, I, I guess when something like that happens, there's nothing that anybody can do except complain. No. Right. I mean, I, I don't think there's a, it's not like you can put a fence around it or anything like that. And I just, I, you know, just, it, it's, fortunately did, you for, the, did you see the headline in the New York post? No. Blame Canada. Blame Canada, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which was awesome. America's but, hat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it 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 was bad. It was bad in New York. If you lived in New York, you were really because you couldn't. I mean, people could not go out. Right. That's how bad it was, you know. Right. And the smoke was just everywhere. So uh, I'm kind of glad I don't live there. It wasn't bad here. I was well, you know, I have to say it bothered me that a few baseball games were actually postponed because of this. They couldn't see in the game. But it also reminded me of that 88 Bears Philadelphia Eagles game where you literally could not see the ball on the field. It was so foggy at yeah. Soldier Field. Yeah. Um, so they wisely um, postponed those games till the next day. Everything, you know, basically with the rain today, I think a lot of that stuff's going to go away uh, in the region. I, I, you know, hopefully in Canada, get your act together. My God, get the R RMCP and or the RCMP involved in it, eh? They'll take care of it. They'll yeah. take care of it. <clears throat> Have right, yourself so some get... back bacon, eh? Cool. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, soldier of fortune, who can always be found where adventure beckons, now takes you to the danger zone of the mid-Atlantic where strange ships slip through the fog with even stranger cargoes, where every man has a price and every woman a past. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Let's get to our popcorn discussion. And we're going to begin with the movie that you chose this week to have and have not. And this is from 1944, starring Humphrey Bogart. And this is the first movie with one Lauren Bacall. And this was the movie that introduced Lauren Bacall, not only to Humphrey Bogart, but to the rest of the world. And uh, this is where, you know, the 20 year old Bacall gets together with the 55-year-old Bogart. No, 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 43. He's 40. 43. He looked he looked 55. We'll talk about that, but he was yeah. 43. <laughs> well, and, but, she, and she actually was 19, unfortunately, sadly. Well, you know, but uh, they did have a torrid affair, and yeah. uh, God love them both for it. But uh, right. the movie itself takes place on the island of Martinique. It is based on an Ernest Hemingway novel with a screenplay. Uh, one of the credits on the screenplay was William Faulkner. Yeah, which I'm surprised to see. It's the first time in history that a film was partially authored by two Nobel Prize winners for literature. Wow. It's, not, it's the only time it's ever happened. It's not happened since. By the way, they never met each other. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of William Faulkner, by the way. He's one of my favorite authors. But Faulkner and, and Hemingway never met each other. 
Well, what, what's interesting is the screenplay doesn't really follow the the book in no. any meaningful way. Have, have, did you read the book? Uh, I've never read the book, but I'm I'm going off of that New York Times yeah. Yeah. review I sent you from 1944. Right. But basically, the movie takes place in Martinique, and it's 1940. 1940 and uh, France has just fallen. Vichy, and, Vichy France. Vichy France. Well, and Vichy France has taken over, and now politics has sort of come to global politics has sort of found itself focused on Martinique. And, and, and basically this is the studio's effort to sort of reprise what Humphrey Bogart did in Casablanca, which was such a popular movie where he's just sort of the world weary guy who's just trying to live his life, but then politics and, and comes into him, it comes, comes to his doorstep and he's forced to make a decision uh, as far as who he wants to help. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's living in Martinique. He basically has a fishing boat. He takes uh, clients out on the water to do sport fishing. But then he's approached by these leftists who want to use his boat to sort of move these guys and get them out of Martinique, help them escape from the Vichy government. And these are obviously leftists who are being sought, who are being looked for, who are being sought after by the Vichy government and obviously by the Nazis. So he has to kind of decide which side he's on. Meanwhile, he runs into Lauren Bacall, who's sort of a wayward woman trying to find her way home. Uh, she's a party girl, but uh, she's sort of experienced some rough times and they sort of take to each other and decide that they're going to help each other out in one way or another. Um, this movie was very interesting in the fact that this was not a movie that Roger Ebert considered one of one of the classic movies. There was no Roger Ebert review of this movie, which was, I thought, shocking. I really yeah, but yeah, but you have to take into consideration Ebert was not able, based on what happened to him physically, to go back as far back as he wanted to because he got sick. And so he he a lot of the films from that era were not covered by him that would have been covered by today. That's that's what I'm saying. Like he didn't have the opportunity to, um, and so there was other bigger fish for for him to fry. But yes, point taken. This was not one of uh, Ebert's um, you know favorite films, but Casablanca certainly was. Obviously. Well, what what what's interesting about this movie is basically it's a reprise again of Casablanca, and instead of a instead of a cafe in the middle of Morocco, you have a boat in Martinique, and yeah. you know he's but he's basically playing the same sort of tough guy character who's clever. He's more clever than everybody else, you know, but he's just trying to live his life and be left alone. Um, but but what what's wonderful about the movie, obviously, is the presentation of Lauren Bacall, who, you know, at 19 years old is just, I mean, knock me out. That husky voice, yeah. you know, she's just wonderful. I don't think she's better in any movie she ever made. You know, and uh, and that's really kind of wonderful to see. And then you also have some wonderful little appearances. You have Hoagie Carmichael, right, the piano player. That's right. Uh, the name of Cricket, who uh, who has some interactions with the characters. And then you also have the great Walter Brennan, yep. uh, who's the drunk, who's basically uh, Steve's friend. Yeah. And then the best moment of the movie is the is the line that McCall utters: "Is that uh, all you got to do is whistle." You know how to whistle, Steve. You just put together your lips and blow. 
you know, and, and that that line itself is worth the price of admission. It really is. And, and it's a wonderful movie. It's not Bogey's best movie. I think it's Bacall's best movie. And it's not, I think, a great movie, but it's a very good movie. And I think everybody needs to see it. I'm glad you show, you selected this. Yeah, I do think it is a great movie. I think it's a four-star film. Um, uh, but I agree that it's not at the very top. The list is in my top 150 or 200 films. Um, interesting thing about Lauren Bacall when Bogart was dying of cancer. The other thing, too, about Bogart, I have never seen anybody looking as old as yeah. he looks at age 43. He looks like he's almost 60 years old with a, a dye job on his hair. Um, yeah. And that's because of how much, how many cigarettes he smoked. He literally was, you know, it, three, three packs a day of unfiltered cigarettes. And so in 1957, in the middle of January, when he finally passed away at age 50, 57 or 58, um, she put a whistle in his casket that said, you if you ever, you know, remember how to whistle, just, you know, was in gold and everything and put it in his hands. And so I thought that was a kind of a nice touch by Lauren Bacall, because I think that the, the key to this film success is their chemistry. And I will make you a case that since they actually became, you know, um, married uh, lovers and married that you've never seen in a, a non-porn film, uh, people react this way. The, chemis the chemistry that you see on the film was real. That actually was happening, much to the chagrin of the great director, Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, who, by the way, today, kind of forgotten, was a great film director. But his wife, Slim Keith, was her name. Slim was her nickname was what the character um, uh, played by Bacall was based on. In fact, some of the lines actually came from his wife. Um, and he, calls Hawks, her, he calls her slim. Yes, yes, you know? exactly. And and Hawks so. was extremely jealous of Bogart because he wanted her too. He, yeah. Hawks wanted Bacall too, because of course everybody wanted that. You know, the venerable Walter Brennan. You ever been stung by a dead bee? You know, and it, I actually had to look that up the first time I saw that. Yes, a dead bee can sting you. Uh, the sting is still active. But, you know, Brennan, who I believe at this point had won two or three Best Supporting Actor awards or was in the process of doing it, there wasn't a better uh, supporting actor in the business at this no. time than, than Walter Brennan. So what I was taken with, and I do agree that I don't think this is, you know, at the level of Casablanca, and I certainly see the comparisons. The audiences, by the way, loved it. The critics, like uh, Crowther of the New York Times, basically said, hey, you know, this is kind of a blatant ripoff of Casablanca. Audience and Audiences didn't feel that way. This was a big box office success, even bigger than Casablanca was at the beginning, not at the end. Um, but uh, the the incredible scene structure. If you look at, forget about the actors in the foreground of the scenes, but what was going on in the background was some of the best scene structure that you'll see in films, like even better than Casablanca. It was so complex, but more importantly, there was no CGI. This was all real. This was shot on Martinique. And um, I thought that was one of the stars of, uh, of this film um, was, was just how well Hawk staged this. Um, you know, this, I feel this way about a lot of black and white films that really don't get a lot of credit today. The use of shadows back then of cigarette smoking and smoke in, in films, it's just, you just don't see that today. You don't, you don't see um, 
that kind of texture to films like it, it was. Um, Hemingway's uh, women characters were a little tinny and sexist, I have to say, which is a common criticism of, of Hemingway. Hemingway and Hawks were big fishing buddies and they would yeah. get drunk on a fishing boat. And Hawks said to Hemingway, I bet you I can make a great movie out of your worst book, which is to have and have not. They got progressively drunk later that day, and and Hemingway took the bet, who up to that point refused to work on films, thought it was beneath him. And so this screenplay, which was molded by three individuals, uh, third individual's name I can't remember, but basically they brought in Faulkner at the end to kind of do some touch-up work. Um, the film as we see it today is nothing like what was written on the script. Lots of impro improvisation occurred while they were making this film. Um, you know, it. it uh, the other thing, too, actors in the golden age were very diminutive. You don't see a lot of big people. So when you see a heavy set guy like the heavy that played the cop, it kind of yeah. sticks out on the screen because these people are basically bogey was five, five and extremely sensitive about how small he was, you know, and, and that kind of comes uh, comes across uh, in this film. It, it does drag a little bit in the second half, I found. I watched it yesterday, and I found that, you know, this this movie, it, it, while it's a classic, it's iconic for, for what you re refer to, which was Lauren Bacall's debut. Um, I, again, without her, I'm not so sure this film is, is anything but a regular Bogart vehicle. But with her, this is an important Bogart film. This is in his top five. The reason why... I grew up as a kid loving Jimmy Cagney as an Irishman. I, I, I saw maybe 55 of, of uh, Cagney's 61 or 62 films. The other ones were not available to be seen, uh, and some of them are lost. Um, but as I've gotten older, my favorite actor has become Bogart. And the reason is, is because he is so understated. He never chews up the scenery. If you notice that he's always like two or three levels below what you might normally do if you were handed that script. Like he is, he, he's just, he, he acts by not acting as well as any film star in movie history. Like you just don't know that he's acting in a movie. That's how good he is. Well, and, and it's also just, it's the little subtle things he does. Like, you know, you talk about a performance by maybe a Marlon Brando and Brando might touch his cheek or something like that. With Bogart, it's a glance. Yeah, it's just right. a little bit of a raise of the eyebrow, something like that. Or his lip might move a little bit, but it's all intentional and it's very, very just subtle. But he was a tremendous actor. He really was. And he 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 wasn't particularly good looking. He no, no, he would never he be a star today. Never, 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 never. But but what he could do with a character, you right. know what I mean? It, it was just wonderful. And well, it, it, it helped that he came up in the Warner Brothers studio system in the 30s. And there was a lot of films from 35 to 40 where he, you know, it wasn't until a film came out called The Petrified Forest when his good friend, Leslie Howard, who died in that plane crash, was in Gone with the Wind, basically insisted that Bogart uh, reprise his role of, uh, I think it was Duke Manatee or whatever, the bad guy that he played on, on uh, in the theater. Um, that's what catapulted him 
to superstardom. And, and, you know, and then Maltese Falcon occurred. And then on the heels of that was Casablanca. And then he, he never looked back after that, but he paid his dues. He wasn't like Bacall who just, Hey, who's that? You know, showed up in one movie and correct. And, and you're absolutely right. That look in his eyes when she says, you know how to whistle, Steve, don't you? When she walks out of that room, that little shot of his face yeah. was like was like every man. Every man in the world, that's exactly how you would have reacted back then. If a woman of that of that ilk did that to you, you would have the same reaction. No, um, you're right. Yeah, the, the, I'm, I'm really glad I saw it. My wife, yeah. I saw it with my wife last night, and she's like, this movie's kind of slow. And and I had to agree with her, but uh, I said that, that, you know, this movie was made in 1944. Yeah. You know, they, right. they had to be slow. It was, it had to be about dialogue. It had to be about right. acting. About character development. And again, like I said, to me, one of the stars of this film was the scene structure itself. In the next film that we talk about, there's something else uh, technically that was one of the stars of that film as well. And it's the same thing here, because, you know, basically when you have Howard Hawks directing and a script by Hemingway and William Faulkner, you know, the expectations are relatively high, not maybe at the time, because these guys were basically film hat film writing hacks but in in retrospect in history it kind of it kind of stands out um and so sorry i'm not surprised that your wife reacted that way because i think she um doesn't like older films i get that but to me um this is what if you're going to be a student of the game of films this is a film you obviously have no absolutely gotta see it has bred many bold adventurers, but none won more glory than the frontiersmen who turned westward and marched into history, breaking new trails, searching for a new home in the wilderness, a freer life, realizing a dream of adventure. This is the story of one of them, of the mountain of a man and his young son and two women. Sometimes people can ruin what they love. All we know, little Eli and me, was living free in the woods. Shooting our meals and following foxes. It's habit-like with us and hard to bust. And maybe it shouldn't be busted. <laughs> the dynamic star of From Here to Eternity, Apache and Veracruz, Bert Lancaster, in a notable first achievement as star and director. All right, so let's get to our next film. And yeah. this is the one that I chose. And I chose The Kentuckian, yeah. directed by Burt Lancaster and starring Burt Lancaster. And I chose this movie because I was just one day I was doing the YouTube sort of rabbit hole. And I saw an interview with Kevin Costner by Rich Eisen. And he was talking about just a discussion he had on the set of Field of Dreams, talking to Burt Lancaster about different movies that he'd made. And he was saying, oh, that, that scene in The Kentuckian. And Burt said, oh, did you see that? You know, and he was talking about, the <laughs> so like, okay, I, I, I need to see, I need to see this. Okay, fat, so if it's killing you, one, come on. <laughs> well, this movie was filmed in 1955 and it was directed by Burt Lancaster. And, and basically the story is about 
sort of a, an outdoorsman, a woodsman uh, named Big Eli Wakefield, who is a widower and he has his son. And they're basically living in the woods, making their way to Kentucky to see his brother, who's little Eli's uncle. Uh, and uh, they're basically from there going to get on a riverboat, go down to New Orleans, and they're going to settle in Texas. Uh, so that's kind of what they're talking about. And along the way, they meet a woman who who's being basically abused and mistreated by these people who have her sort of in indentured servitude. Uh, Big Eli takes his money for Texas and pays for her freedom. And they basically take her along with her. And you think, okay, so he's going to end up with this woman. And this woman is going to be a mother to his little son. But then he arrives in the town of, uh, what's the name of the town? Humility. Uh, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> ironically, the town's name is Humility, where his brother is a, where his brother, Zach, is a big tobacco sort of business owner. And, uh, and, and, and Zach has designs on taking, on basically working the buckskin out of uh, big Eli and turning him into a sort of a civilized individual. But, but Eli, you know, is a big, strong man, but he's naive. He's gullible. He gets taken advantage of. He gets made fun of because he's not an educated man. And so he comes into this small town, humility, which is actually to a guy like Eli, a pretty big city, and he gets made fun of. And the local bar owner, played by Walter Matthau, makes fun of him. And sort of they, 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 they have a lot of fun at, at his expense. And they embarrass him and they make him feel ashamed. And, you know, but little by little, he begins to get his self-respect. He distinguishes himself in the business. And eventually, we discover that there is a feud that the Wakefield family had with this other family. And these two sort of roughnecks, these killers, have been waiting, biding their time for the perfect opportunity to kill Big Eli Wakefield. And it, it, it's an interesting movie. And I think in a lot of ways, it is an allegory, whether this was intended or not. It is an allegory for Burt Lancaster's career in films. Because you probably, you know, he probably arrives in Hollywood, this young, good looking, smart, but naive young actor who gets taken advantage of by the movie companies, by the executives, who gets pulled in different directions. And this is his chance to sort of make the movie that he wants to make and show the kind of star and show how intelligent he is and how much he knows about making movies. And I think that that's kind of at the heart of what motivated him to make this movie. And I think he sees a lot of himself in this character. Um, you know, it, it's an unusual film. I wouldn't go so far to say it's a great movie. I think it's a good movie. There's a wonderful cameo performance by the father of Keith and David Carradine, one John Carradine, who plays the uh, the uh, hawker? He basically is selling the uh, the 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 thing that cures all your ales. You know what I mean? The, yeah. the sort of liquor, snake oil, the snake oil, right? The snake oil that was from Cleopatra herself. The ass that is Cleopatra, and he's wonderful in that role. It really provides a little comic relief, and uh, and and the whole thing just sort of it's an American tale. It's, it's told at a time when America was very naive, developing, 
people were moving west and pioneering. And, and you know, I enjoyed seeing this movie. Burt Lancaster at that age, I mean, wow, beautiful man. I mean, he's just gorgeous with his perfect white teeth and his great big shoulders and his perfect waist. I mean, he was really perfect in this role. I mean, he obviously cast himself for it and developed this movie and directed it with him in mind. So he was going to make himself look as good as possible. But but the highlight is a fight that he has with Walter Matthau, who plays uh, who plays basically what's the guy's name? It is uh, oh god, I'm doesn't matter. At... Move on. Yeah, move on. <laughs> but he plays basically the bar owner, and uh, and and so he fights. The guy's name is Stan Bodine, and he's the bar owner. He doesn't like Wake. Father of Jethro Bodine. But anyways. But 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 he he's good with Walter Matthau's character Bodine is good with a whip, and he yeah. basically provokes a fight with uh, Eli Wakefield, and he whips him mercilessly until finally, with the help of a good woman, he is with the help of Hannah, he's able to gain the upper hand and win the fight. And I'll tell you, it's a great moment to see these two big big guys grappling with each other. It's a great fight for such an old movie. And that was, for me, the highlight of the movie. I hope you enjoyed this. This was a very interesting film. Um, you know, um, it's interesting to me that this... So just a little bit of a backstory on this. This was the first film that um, Burt directed. He only directed another one in the 70s. Um, prior to him directing this film, he made some comments publicly about how easy it was to direct the film and pissed off the director's guild so much so they kicked him out and so he makes this film and then during the process of making this film he was like mea culpa i'm sorry this is a much harder job than i thought it was i have to act and direct oh my god i'm working 21 hours a day so it, it dawned on him actually directing was a very difficult job and it still is it's interesting to me that i agree with you bert was in his prime you know the pompadour and everything he looked you know i don't know where he found a dentist like that in the wild west but his teeth were extraordinary <laughs> extraordinary i might say i don't think he was born with those teeth by the way um you know bert has always been one of my favorite actors, one of my favorite films. We never did, but I think we will someday. It's called The Swimmer. because That's my favorite Burt Lancaster work. And the, one of the reasons is is because that's in 1968. Burt was 53 years old. You know, when he made that movie, I don't think you'd be hard-pressed to find a 53-year-old that had a body like that. And that's because he was a gymnast. Yeah. He was a gymnast for like 15 years and he had a gymnast body and he basically kept that body well into to older age. This passed as entertainment in Eisenhower's 1950s. I'm not convinced that this film could even be made today no. based on 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 um, many factors. The, the singing in the singing in the film yeah. the singing in the film just didn't connect, but I guess gathering around a piano back in those days with friends equaled uh you know spontaneously breaking into song because they didn't have smartphones to check out. Yeah, they didn't have Spotify or whatever <laughs> to download. They couldn't, you, know. you know, um there was a line in the film that made me laugh out loud. The president wouldn't cheat a man. Oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, really? Talk <laughs> really? about naive. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, I bet you would got a laugh in 1955, too. You well, know you know, Eisenhower was pretty beloved in 55. I have to say, I, I, I don't I, I don't think you know, he was a lot of things, but he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a modern politician like that. 
I thought Walter Matthau in his first role, which later in his life he said, "I I was horrible. This was terrible." It, I thought he was kind of wasted here. His ta- his ultimate talents as a great movie star that it kind of um, became evident in the late sixties and the seventies. Um, it just was kind of. Uh, you know, wasted here. Um, I also thought John Carradine was, he, I, he's never met a scene that he doesn't shoot up. Oh I mean, yeah. He, no. he, he's a, yes. Carradine was, was a great character actor, but he overacted in every movie he was in. I'm sorry. Um, and also Crowther was right. The Kentuckian wants to be a Texan. Yeah. It's yeah. leaving Kentucky to go to Texas. They don't really even flesh that point out of why that is, except about the whole, we got towards this riverboat thing towards the end. I thought that was the most interesting part of the film. And to me, the, the if I was looking at the script, I would have done more with the riverboat and those gamblers. I just thought that there was, the, the, that those were very interesting. That last scene, which was in vogue back then, the, the fighting scene was right out of the quiet man. That, yeah. you know, it was, oh, it, the only thing missing was like slow motion. Lancaster insisted that the double, uh, the stunt head who was actually a, an expert with whips actually whip him on the shoulder one time so he could feel what it was like. So he took an actual shot and he did bleed and it cut him open. Um, but that kind of helped uh, what is otherwise a completely unbelievable scene that this guy even has a chance to get up after he's been whooped with like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, W.C. Fields was right about child actors, you know, they're, 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 as long as they're cooked right, they're okay, you know. It's, it, it, I, I thought the, the the lead kid in here was very, very good, but all the other kids were like, holy crap. Um, you know that it, kid, Donald McDonald, Donald yeah. McDonald plays Little Eli Wakefield, yeah. you know, he was a producer on yeah. Cat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot, it's the thing about the incestuous Hollywood, a lot, if these people stuck around, and long after their film career was over, they they had to pay their bills. They had to get jobs in the business. So, um, you know, uh, hobo makes good. Um, that's right. The, no, that's kind of what the movie is. Hobo makes good. But he, one, one one last thing, because we have we're running out of time here. The cinemascope was the star of this film. That the color of this film. There was a a, a, a slew of films in this period that used cinemascope and cinemascope i should say and it just was beautiful when you would see it in the big screen because the colors would just just light up the screen pop wow Colonels all over the place on the floor, and let's open up the bag of peanuts. 
and let's get to our baseball discussion. And we'll begin with the retirement of friend of the show, Bartolo Colon. Now, it should be mentioned that he did not retire from the major leagues. He is retired from basically baseball, from independent leagues, Mexican leagues, minor leagues, all sorts of things. But he finally, at the age of 50, has hung up his cleats. And uh, I, I, for one, am very, very sad about this because this <laughs> guy was one of my favorite players of all time. And uh, I'm just really broke up uh, over this. And it goes back to events where he finally hit his first major league home run as a Met, which was one of the most improbable home runs ever, you know, uh, which he did. I, I don't know. This You're talking about a guy who's pitched how many years in the majors? Well, 20? through through uh, four decades. Four decades. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, because I put in, in the rundown sheet, yeah. I asked the question, is Bartolo Colon a Hall of Famer? And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'd really like to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so I love Bartolo Colon. He's the patron saint for all fat guys that play baseball. Um, yes. In 2014, when he hit that home run in San Diego, um, even the fact that he's won a Cy Young and, you know, he's won 250 baseball games, he said it was the highlight of his career and his life. I mean, he never – he never. Um, expected not just the reaction to it, but just the fact, the improbability of, of yeah. the first time he ever hit a home run at, at, in the pro level ever at, for him to do that. Um, you know, when it comes to win above replacements, pitchers, as I've said this before, and I'll continue to say this, that they, um, it, it, it to me, the, the win above replacement does not really apply perfectly to pitchers like it does a hitter. And so hit, when you look at his win above replacement at uh, 46, uh, uh, what is it? 46.2. He has 247 wins with 188 losses. He comes up just short of being in the Hall of Fame. And the reason, the parameter that I use is kind of the Dave Kingman thing for offense is Tommy John. Tommy John has 288 wins. Now you can make the case that maybe Tommy John belongs in the Hall of Fame. But Tommy John was very good over a long very period of time. He wasn't great over a long period of time. He was very good. And so my answer is no, he doesn't make the Hall. But he's in my Hall of Fame of favorite yeah. baseball players. Um, and, and who knows? Maybe someday they will put him in. I, I just – I think there's other people uh, that come to mind before you, you go and put in a Bartolo Colon. But what a career. He's a guy that you get the feeling like if we were playing today and we needed an extra player, we'd call him, he'd show up. He's he'd one, of, he, he's one <laughs> of those kind of guys. He just he, – baseball is in his veins. It's in his blood. And, in fact, guys like that, we've talked about this. I wonder – he needs to be in the game some way, somehow, so he doesn't go mad, right? I mean, it's just yeah, – I, I, I worry yeah. about that. He, he, he was with so many teams. I mean, Cleveland, <laughs> L.A., the, the Mets, the A's, the White Sox – the Twins, Atlanta, the Red Sox, the Rangers, the Expos, and then finally the Yankees for one year. You know, 21 years in the majors. He was an all-star in 1998 and <laughs> then again in 2016. That's Amazing. 18 years. Amazing. His first and his last all-star game appearance. That is yeah. absolutely amazing. He wins a Cy Young Award. He leads the league in wins once. 
That's yeah. really about it. Yeah, right. That's about it, right? That's yeah. about it. That's about it on the black ink test. You know, he had a few others. Uh, like he, he did have 38 complete games, which in the modern era, that's something. That is something. In the old days, pitchers used to have that in the single season. But now to see 38 in a career, that's that's extraordinary. So some teams only have one or two complete games the whole year. Uh, but, you know, 3,400 3, innings pitched for his career. Amazing. Absolutely you know, amazing. And how many strikeouts? Uh, 2,500 strikeouts. I respectable. Mean, These are all very respectable numbers, but they're also numbers that you should attain when you play in four decades, quite that's honestly. True too. That's true, too. <laughs> it's kind of like I, I always felt this way about Carl Yastrzemski, and I've gotten into big arguments about this. One of the reasons why Carl is in the Hall of Fame is because he played for 25 years. And so when you play for 25 years, your numbers tend to be uh, yeah. right, exactly, or stick out. And so uh, who knows on Bartola Cologne, but I don't know how they could put him in before. Before they put in somebody like Tommy John, you know, or Lou Whitaker, or, or well, not even, you know, that's I'm just comparing pitchers because I don't think yeah. pitchers get a fair shake with the win above replacement uh, issue. Very few pitchers, like when you see um, Clayton Kershaw with his 81, that's an extraordinarily high win above replacement. He is a first ballot Hall of Famer if he stops playing today, even though from a win standpoint, I think he only has 210 wins, but his his metrics on everything else, the low ERAs, it's just, he's one of baseball's greatest pitchers and he's going to waltz into the hall of fame. Um, Bartolo, uh, Bartolo suffers from a high ERA. That's part of the issue. Like, you know, you can't, it's what the way I used to feel about Jack Morris. If you've got an ERA over four, how do you go into the hall of fame? I mean, I just don't, because in the old days you never had any guys. I think Morris was one of the first guys. And so, um, you know, I love the guy. Oh, yeah, I do, too. And the other thing about Cologne is he basically, I mean, the last 10 years of his career, he had one pitch, a right. fastball. Correct, he correct. Could, well, he, he always had tremendous location. That was why he won a, a Cy Young in, in 2004 or five, whatever that was. He he, The ball went where he wanted it to go almost all the time. If you wanted to throw a ball, you, he would throw a ball. But if he, want, if he was pinpointing that strike zone, he was as good as anybody because he didn't have overpowering stuff, you know. He, so. he did at, at one time. He had a, a yes, he had above average fastball, but his location was his his entree to to, to, yeah. to being really a, a very good base, uh, major league baseball player. Yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, baseball will miss him. I hope he finds yep. his way into the game in some capacity because right. we need more players like him. All right, so let's uh, change the subject, and I want to talk about uh, Oscar Comas, yeah. who's a young uh, player in the White Sox organization, not to be confused with Oscar Colas. Yeah. This is Oscar Comas. Right. And this young player has basically decided to come out as gay, and this is a big deal. Um, whether he will make the major leagues is another issue, another matter, but uh, I think that it's interesting that he chose to come out as gay, he is uh, one of the few professional athletes. I don't think there's very many professional athletes in any sport who've come out as gay. And uh, I, I really have to uh, tip my cap to this guy. I want to show this guy some respect for, for, for wanting to live his genuine life and to say who he wants to be. And this comes on the heels of, you know, the series Ted Lasso, which has a character who is a professional soccer player who comes out as gay. And I think that uh, these things are not unrelated. And, uh, you know, and, and I think it's a, a good thing for baseball. I think it's a good thing for society. I hope this guy makes the big club. 
I hope he can contribute in a meaningful way. And uh, I think that, you know, with a guy like Liam Hendricks on the Cub, on the White Sox, who's done who's done a lot for gay rights and uh, LB, LGBTQ plus sort of uh, rights, who chose the White Sox because he felt like the White Sox were also kind of in line with his way of thinking. I think this is a good, good thing. And I think it's good that he's part of the White Sox organization. And I'm really happy about this. I, I know you are too. Well, I mean, I, I look forward to the day when this isn't a story. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's kind of the fact that this is even a story just kind of shows you where we're at. Um, I also look forward to the day when someone has a fairly decent professional career, regardless of what sport that you're in, that is also gay, as opposed to someone like this guy um, who may never make it into the majors and he'll be known as saying that he was gay. To me, it's just, you know, I just think that we've got a, still got a long way to go in this area, but I, I look forward to the day when this is not a story, quite honestly. Well, and and, and again, I mean, the, the, the pushback is going to come from players in the locker room who don't feel comfortable having a gay teammate. Yeah, right. That's where it's going to come from. And also perhaps from coaches who feel the same way, Um, you know, but we'll see how this develops. And I think that the White Sox may find a way to give this guy a chance to play with the big club, whether he makes a significant contribution at that level is another issue. But uh, I think that certainly the White Sox are the perfect team for him to be on. Well, the the White Sox are definitely playing better baseball, that's for sure. And of our little three teams that we kind of follow, to me, they're they've moved up to towards the top of the list, um, due primarily to the fact that the Tigers can't hit the baseball; they have the worst batting average in baseball, and um, that while their pitching is better than the Sox, the Sox are a little bit better in both categories, both hitting and pitching. And uh, you'll you'll see in the last. 30 games, 20 games, 10 games, the Sox are starting to improve, um, which is desperately needed by that franchise because they were expected to do so much more. I'm kind of a fan of this new young manager, but I'm, I'm fearful that if they don't, if they, if they finish really poorly, I'm, I'm, I, he may be a casualty of that. Um, but uh, just want to kind of move ahead to, to Jason Stark's column, if you don't yeah. mind, because there's a lot, lot to unpack here. I did not know that it, Aaron Judge is basically pacing almost exactly the way he was last year at this on this date from a statistical standpoint. His home runs, all of his numbers are almost identical. If you were to ask someone without looking at the numbers, you would think he was having a bad year. And I don't know whether we're expecting these things out of people and and so when they don't, you know, live up to those expectations, but from home runs you know, multi-home run games, multi-hit games, runs scored, all the metrics, he's almost exactly where he was last year. So, I, I you know, um, just kind of interesting there. And not, unfortunately, he's, he's hurt. The interesting st- piece in this story was about this guy, Luis Arise, uh, uh, who plays for uh, Miami, who was uh, uh, <laughs> who somehow, yeah. inexplicably, the Twins let this guy go. And he's flirting with batting 400 right now. And so not a fantasy baseball player. We actually had to cut him in our league. We drafted him this year, but he doesn't hit home runs, but he hits everything else. And at one point, I think he was like 24 out of 47 or something like that. I mean, he's flirting with 400. It's just, 
in, you know, we haven't seen that since George Brett and Rod Carew and Tony Gwynn, the late great Tony Gwynn. Um, so it's just, he, he's a very interesting um, slat line um, when you look at uh, Arise, because it, it, it just kind of sticks out like, hey, you know, who is this guy? Where did this guy come from? You know, and, and, you know, they're comparing them to Ichiro at the Gary Templeton and some of these other Kirby Puckett. Uh, well, what, it, what's interesting about it is, you know, he's hitting so well, but he has so few runs batted in. Yeah. And so few runs scored. It, it's, yeah. it, it, it will be a record if it stays on pace. If he bats over 370, he'll score less than 100 runs. I mean, that's just never, that's unheard of. But right now, Miami is in second place. Amazing. That's amazing. Games be, yeah. They're 37 and 29, three and a half games behind Atlanta. I think it's it's really, really exciting. And I hope they do well. I love watching him play. He hits everything. You know, it's really funny when a guy goes one for three and his batting average goes down. Correct. Correct. That's a great hit right there. Think about it. Think about that. How often does that ever happen? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love it. He really is. Uh, it's exciting. And we haven't seen a player like this in quite a while. You know, and, uh, you know, he's he's similar to Gary Templeton. He's similar to Ichiro. He's similar to Richie Ashburn, who are all players that uh, Jason Stark cites in that column. So it's uh, really, really exciting stuff. So keep an eye on that guy, you know. So uh, now I also want to mention the A's are a disaster. <laughs> on pace to be 94 games under 500. <laughs> They're 17 and 50. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> they're on pace to lose like 130 games, 125 games. That, I mean, that's, that's really that's really the New York Mets, 1962. You're talking about that's right. That's which right. an expansion team, <laughs> and this is a team that you know wants to move to Las Vegas. Will Correct. Las Vegas even welcome them? Yeah, you know, and it's just it's so sad to see this it once is. wild franchise just fall so far. But this is the this is the nature of uh, Major League Baseball in 2023. You know, if you don't have money, you cannot compete. Right. And, and even if you do have money, sometimes you can't compete. So it's kind of weird. But uh, you know, anyway. But uh, all right. So let's. Uh, Steven Strasburg. Yes, yeah, Steven Strasburg. He had another setback. Right. This guy is just been. It's just terrible. Um, poor Steven Strasburg. How much money was he paid initially? This was a uh, it, it, they're saying that if everything stands and he doesn't pitch again, which is likely, it's it's let's put it this way prior to 1980, your career's over 100%. There's no question about that. There is an outside, or again, he's 34 years old and he'll be 35 before he co would come back from this. It's unlikely, and it's a sad case, but I believe it's $180 million that the, or, or an excess of that, that he didn't really perform on that guaranteed contract. So it'll go down as one of, you know, I thought Hayward's was bad, and now Hayward's kind of playing fair to Midland with the Dodgers, which is which just is blows my mind. It kind of pisses me off, too. Um, but but I, you know, $180 million. I mean, that's really going to anchor the Washington team for a few years. However, what he did in 2019 will warm the hearts of those Washington national fans forever. I mean, he was he was the very first pitcher, I think, in history to go five and zero in the postseason. 
I mean, it's just, that's so hard to do. That's just mind boggling because again, it's the best teams you're facing. So to, you know, if he never pitches again in the majors, which is entirely possible, he was a brief shining star for a moment. And uh, it's sad what's, what's happened to Strasburg. He, he is making $35 million a year. Yeah. And he has been limited to 31 innings. Wow. Since shocking. Shocking. I mean, shocking. It, it, it's terrible. Yeah. I feel really, really bad for this guy. He, he was wonderful for a very brief period of time. He basically, they carried the Washington nationals carry, uh, he carried the nationals on their on his back to win yep. the world series. Um, but it just hasn't happened for him again. And it's too bad. I remember, when he was a rookie or before he was a rookie. Remember he was a draft pick and you were the one who had told me about this guy. They're like, Oh, you got to see video of this guy throwing. He's going to go. He's going to be a great pitcher. And when he's been healthy, he was a great pitcher. He was exactly as advertised. The problem is he just never could be healthy. I I think the baseball uh, freeway is littered with guys like this over the years. I mean, no, yeah, right. Pryor's a, a great example of that. Um, so it's sad whenever whenever this happens. The only th- the only benefit that Strasburg has is that it is 2023. From a technology standpoint, if there's a will and there's a way that this can be done, they'll they, they can do it. However, it's the type of damage that, based on what mm-hmm. I read, it's certainly in the New York Times, is it's unlikely and it's in, in, inadvisable. But like doctors will tell you, it's not. This is not a good idea to do. Um, and so. Um, sad, but, uh, you know, again, we'll always have 2019, Stephen, you know, I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, before we wrap up the show, I wanted to talk about, um, Ed Stack who passed away. Um, yeah. he was the, um, you know, for many years, he was the, I guess the president of, uh, the, the hall of fame, baseball's hall of fame. What I didn't know was when the whole Rose debacle, and I don't want to rejudicate that one again, we've done it ad nauseum, came about, he actually had to put um, some language into the Baseball Hall of Fame um, rules and regulations, um, basically, which, you know, is a morality cause clause basically. Uh, And and it didn't exist before, so the, the technically... Faye Vincent and Bart Giamatti could have said, you're not eligible for the Hall of Fame or you are um, uh, you you are um, persona non grata in, in MLB. But technically, he could have been up for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he could have been because because Major League Baseball in the ineligible list have nothing to do with the Baseball Hall of Fame and induction to that thereof. And it was Stack's decision to basically respect the ineligible list. Baseball but also to close up, close up that loophole. Yes, right. He closed the loophole and basically said that anyone who's on baseball's ineligible list is also ineligible for induction into the Hall of Fame. And this mm-hmm. was a blow to guys like Pete Rose and also to the to the, to the Sh- pay- Shoeless Joe, Joe. Yeah. Joe Jackson and other players like that. Yeah. You know, and 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 you know I, he did this out of a out of a clear commitment to doing what he feel what he felt yes. was the right thing. Right. And I have to respect Stack for this. Now, again, we don't want to adjudicate Rose's case for the Hall of Fame. That's yeah. I've always said that is Pete Rose's 
problem. It is right. not yours. It is not mine. Right. I don't have a say in that matter. And I really don't care right. what happens. Well, whatever happens to Pete Rose will happen long after he passes away. He's an 80-year-old man, and nothing's happening in the next 10 years on this subject. And so, you know, I've always felt like when it comes to Shoeless Joe, you know, it's been almost, a, well, it's been 100 years now at this point, you know, and he's not in. I, Pete, it's not looking good. I mean, oh, but I do think, good. I do think, you know, a Hall of Fame two, 300 years from now could have a section that would include Rose and um shoeless yeah. joe as being you know peck's bad boys and these guys screwed up so they're not really in the hall but however their accomplishments are hall worthy because they certainly are in both cases um so uh and, and, you know if you go to the hall of fame and if you go to the museum pete rose is represented in different ways yeah, he doesn't right. have a plaque Correct. but there are you know his his bat i think that he used to get his four thousand one hundred ninety second hit right always there and 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 there's certainly balls that he signed and there's yep. uh, there's stuff about the reds teams that he played on so he's in the hall of fame to a certain extent <laughs> right but uh but he's not in as a member of the hall of fame and he doesn't have a plaque and and again i mean i have to respect stack's decision um this is the kind of thing that uh you know in this day and age would be harder for a man to take that kind of stand that someone would accuse him of being uh, a boomer or an old guy <laughs> right having an old world attitude towards looking at the world you know and uh but but i got to say we needed men like this to take a moral stand Correct. on certain issues Correct. and uh, whether you agree with uh, rose being in or not i think that you have to admire what Stack stood for. And, 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 you know, you look at Rose and really it's, it's very much like Donald Trump. It is people now who want to see Rose in the hall of fame are people who live in Cincinnati right. and who are diehard Reds fans. And that represents a tiny minority of the American baseball sort of fan base. And, uh, you know, as, as hard as they may lobby and campaign and as many things as they may put on Facebook, I'm sorry. I don't think he gets in. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I think that, uh, that there's an interesting corollary there with Trump, because I think that what Ed was interested in was the truth. Yeah. And, and some people today don't care about the truth. They just create their own what they think is the truth. And it's really not in, in this particular case. You know, he took a stand and I, and I you know, we'll, uh, rest in peace, Ed Stack. Life well lived. Uh, baseball yeah. owes you a debt of gratitude. No, he really made the Hall of Fame. And I'm talking about the museum itself. Yeah. You know, he right. really he, he modernized it and brought it into the it, new century. It, and, and it's a great resource, not just to walk around and look at all the relics right. and artifacts, but for scholarly study of baseball. That yeah. library is... It's wonderful. And sure. a lot of that is due to Stack. For so, sure. For all sure. right. So now we have come to the point in our show where we have to select our movies for our next show. And we'll begin with your choice. What am I going to see? <laughs> so we're, you know, I'm kind of stuck in that last century. We're going to go back to 1967 oh, for wow. a film that was written and directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. This is a French film with the... Um, and it's called Le Samurai. Le Samurai. Yeah. 
All right, you'll have to get that the exact spelling for me. Yep. But I'm looking forward to seeing that. I chose a movie that is going to be reprised very soon this summer. They're bringing back all the characters that were in the original, and they're doing a sort of updated version of the film, and that is the full Monty. Ah. So, You're talking about the original full Monty. Original full Monty. We're gonna we're gonna take a look at the original as the as the sort of reprise comes out this summer. Nice. Give people a chance to look back at that movie and what made that movie such a good one. So we'll enjoy that a great deal, I'm sure. All right. So until next time, we are the two peas in the podcast. Lately, oh, I've been thinking how much I miss my lady. Now Marina's in a car in the Yeah.